Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Good morning. My name is Julia Geiger. I am a member of the Dream Team here at Bridgepoint. I serve with the student team, and I also occasionally serve in the nursery in the back. And I'm on the communication team, which means that every once in a while, Matt trusts me enough to come up here and hopefully not say anything too blasphemous. (laughs) So I have a husband and a beautiful, wild, smart, awesome two-year-old. And uh, I love being part of a family that I love. I think that that is uh, just such a joy and uh, not everyone gets that. And I also was raised in a very great family. I'm one of four siblings. I have two older brothers and an older sister. And I wanna tell you a little bit about my sister, Janice, this morning. So Janice is married, she has a toddler and she has another baby on the way. And they currently live in France, Southern France, which is really cool. And before she lived in France, she lived in Jordan in the Middle East. So she is quite the world traveler. And in Jordan, she was teaching English to Syrian refugee children. I know she wins the prize for like best Christian ever, right? It's like she's set. Now, the thing about Jordan is that it is a country that is not known for being very friendly to Christianity. The official religion of the state is Islam. And while the law states that there is freedom of religion, it is against the law to evangelize, to convert anyone from Islam. And, and even though there is technically freedom of religion, the societal reality tells a little bit of a different story. I want to share a story of my sister in her own words that uh, she was kind enough to share with me from an event that occurred in her fourth year of teaching in Jordan. She says this, we faced a lot of persecution from our neighbors. Some people did not like that we were helping Syrians because they resented that the refugees were in Jordan when Jordan already had high unemployment and scarce resources. Others did not like that Christians were involved in educating Muslim children. People would break in at night and destroy pipes and video cameras. They threw rocks through the windows. They posted on social media calling for others in the city to band together and destroy the school as well as a local hospital that was run by missionaries. We worried for the safety of the students and where they would be without the school. We fed them, gave them shoes and jackets in the winter, provided health checks, and taught them when none of the Jordanian schools would take them. I loved this job. It broke my heart every single day, but I felt sure that I was doing what God had designed me to do. Then in the spring of 2019, while teaching one of my first grade classes, the police entered the school. They told us to immediately shut down, to send the kids home, and not reopen. The day after the school shut down, the staff met at the church. After a time of prayer, the principal began the discussion about what we should do. He asked for ideas about how to keep going, and the teachers jumped in with creative ideas and scenarios and solutions. I was astounded, and I sat in mostly bewildered silence. In my mind, the matter was finished. We were opposed not only by the townspeople, but by the government. I had the mentality of a privileged white Christian who had grown up in the United States. For the first 25 years of my life, I lived in a place where nobody was very bothered by my Christianity. Here, I was surrounded by believers who had been the persecuted minority for their entire lives. 
There were 60-year-old teachers sitting around that table who knew that the government was not on their side and not on the Lord's side, and they had decided long ago which one they would listen to. When I had heard that the police had shut us down, I thought, we're finished. But when they heard it, they thought, how will we overcome this in order to keep serving the Lord? They started from the mindset, knowing that the world was against them and that struggle was a part of their faith. Unfortunately, I think there's a really common belief amongst Western Christians that when we reach resistance in something, even something that we feel like the Lord has called us to, if we reach resistance, that means that the Lord is shutting the door on us, that he's not in it or that he doesn't want us to continue. But scripture often discusses hardship, even suffering as a given. And it doesn't pin these trials as a problem, but rather an opportunity for us to respond. The truth is this, our life will be full of storms And with these storms come pain and testing. If you have your Bible, you can open it up to Mark 6. We'll be in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them when they saw him walking on the lake and they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. I think it's really easy to read that story. And I think it's a story that we all have heard a million times, whether it was in Sunday school when we were younger, or we've heard a million pastors preach on it. But I think it's really easy to walk away with the wrong idea because you might read the story and think the main point is cool, we have a God who can calm the storm. And while that's true, I don't think it's the main point of the story. Because if it were, Jesus wouldn't have said, he he would have said, don't be afraid because I'm going to calm the storm. But that's not what he said. He said, don't be afraid. It's me. He pointed out who he was as if he was the thing that they needed most in the storm. And I think that these words They're paralleled by the words heard by the Israelites in Joshua 1, which is be strong and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you. Jesus promised that in this world, we would have trouble. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And the question is, how are we going to react when it does come? I want you to notice something kind of interesting about the scripture. It says that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. The the word here in the Greek actually means forced. He forced them to get into the boat. So they weren't in the boat in the middle of the storm, which Jesus knew was coming. They weren't in that storm because of disobedience. They were in the storm because of obedience. 
And I think we all know where we've all have gone through. I know I have, I've gone through my fair share of storms that are a result of my own sin or honestly me just making some really stupid decisions. And I found myself in a storm as a result of that. But not every storm is that way. Not every storm is a result of sin. There are storms in our life that will come in the midst of, or even as a direct result of our obedience to God. My sister and her coworkers didn't find themselves in a storm of being shut down by the police because they were being disobedient. They were being obedient. They were fulfilling the great commission of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we need to rid ourselves of the lie that if something gets difficult, it's because God isn't in it because scripture often preaches the opposite. And I think the apostle Paul knew this truth very well. Go ahead and turn to second Corinthians 12. <clears throat> I want to give you some context because the word, the first word is therefore, and a little uh, Bible reading tip. If you first word is therefore, you want to ask yourself, what is the therefore? Therefore. And so what happens before this is that Paul is defending himself because there are people coming to Paul and questioning his authority as an apostle. And they're trying to preach a different gospel. And they're saying, well, well, who are you to say that you're the final word on what the gospel is? And so Paul says that he's only going to boast in his weakness, but if he wanted to, he could boast in himself and he would be justified not only because of what he's endured for the Lord, but because of what he's done and the revelations that he's received from the Lord. So then that's our context. So then we get into the verse it says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults in hardships in persecutions in difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul mentions a thorn and we're not told what the thorn is. And there are some different theories out there. And maybe there was something wrong with his eyesight. Maybe it was some other physical ailment. Maybe it was a person who was really bothering him and, and, and oppressing him, but we don't get to know. And honestly, I think that that's on purpose. I like it better that way because while we may not be able to relate to failing eyesight, we can all relate to having a thorn. And Paul's point here is that he's going through a painful experience. And I know that we can compare pain. It's, it's a really unfortunate thing that we do in our society. Like I can stand up here and say, well, I've been through this, this, and this, and that's so much worse than what you've been through, or it's nothing compared to what you've been through. And I think it's such a foolish thing that we do. Like it's some sort of competition to compare our pain because at the end of the day, pain is pain and pain hurts. Last week, I received a text from one of my closest friends. She had been pregnant and had lost the baby. It was her second miscarriage in two years. 
as I listened to her wrestle with her faith in the midst of this deep pain, I was struck by the paradox of her situation. She was sending me, this is this, this is this worship song that I'm listening to right now that is really encouraging me. And, and this is this verse that's pointing me toward truth. And then after a little bit, she sent this text. I feel silly for being so hurt because God is still good. I think it's such a raw and honest statement that is, is rooted in this lie that is either one of two things that one because God is good, we should be able to just toughen it up and stick it out. And we shouldn't be in pain because his goodness overshadows our pain. But that's not the human experience. That's not real. And I think that the second lie is that life is, should be painless after you follow Christ. But that's not the message of scripture. I wish it were true, but it's not and if you believe that, your faith will be a roller coaster of emotions and you will never feel anchored. The message of scripture is not that life will be painless. The message of scripture is that the pain you have will not be purposeless. Jesus sends us into the storm to produce something in us that could not be produced on calm water. I know that statement can kind of mess with your theology. And I think that that's because that statement is entirely based on how do you view God? Do you see God as someone who is angry or disappointed or just waiting for you to get it together? Do you even see him as he's testing you because he's screwing with you or even if because he wants you to prove something to you? I think that one is a really common one in our society that we think that testing our faith is us proving that we are faithful to God. But in the Bible, the word test is actually used in reference to testing metal and testing metal means refining. And the way that you refine metal is that you melt it down entirely and you skim the impurities off the top. Testing is not about proving something to God it is about God doing something in you. This is why James one tells us to rejoice when we have trials or hardships of any kind, because it leads to our maturity, our completion, that we would not lack anything. And that is what God wants for us. Some of you know, my son Ezra, a couple of months ago, he broke his leg. He fell down the stairs Honestly, the scariest, most awful moment of my life. And it could have been a lot worse and I'm grateful that it wasn't. But he had to wear a cast for three weeks. He had this huge giant red cast and he wasn't allowed to walk on it. And then after three weeks, they said, okay, he can wear a boot now. And, and the cool thing about the boot is he's allowed to walk on it. But the boot was so big and bulky that Ezra, the way that he figured out how to walk with it, was to turn his foot sideways. And then this foot kept walking forward and he would kind of drag it along a little bit. And he did this for so long that once they took the boot off, he still walked with one foot straight and one foot sideways. 
because his body had created the habit, the muscle memory of walking that way. And so now we get to do this really fun thing where every single night we have to do these physical therapy exercises with him where we have to retrain his leg to be straight. And it's such a pain in the butt <laughs> because he hates it. Oh, he hates it. It doesn't feel good. It hurts sometimes. It's uncomfortable. It interrupts his playtime. And another thing we have to do is we have to kind of nag him throughout the day. Like, okay, buddy, remember, turn your leg in. You got to walk straight. Nobody wants to be nagged. And so it's not fun because he just wants to play and run around and he just wants to do what feels natural to him. But we do it because we know the truth that it's not what his leg was meant to do. And I was thinking about this as a parallel for our spiritual life. Like before we were saved, we lived our life in sin and we had all of these coping mechanisms for how to just make it through and survive. And we learned these ways to just keep walking that weren't actually the way that we were meant to walk. And then we got saved and we have new life in Christ, but the muscle memory is still there. And so we have to let God retrain our muscles and it doesn't feel good and it's not fun. And sometimes it hurts, but it's because everything in our body is telling us to walk that way when God knows that that way is death. And he wants us that way, which is life. Refining is not comfortable, but I promise it's not possible to spiritually mature and remain comfortable. Ezra doesn't want to change the way that he walks because it's not fun or convenient, but I push him because I'm his mom and I love him. And I'm continually working to do everything that I can so that he is healthy and happy and whole. And this is what God is doing for us, but on so much more of a perfect level that we could even imagine because he sees and knows everything. He sees every single moment that you've been through and exactly what he can use to turn you toward him and to bring you to wholeness. He is the perfect parent with perfect wisdom and he knows exactly what we need. Hebrews 12, 11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But later it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those that have been trained by it. A number of times I've heard someone say, I'm afraid to pray or to seek God because I think, what if he asked me to do something that I hate? And I have to think like how view, how low is our view of God that we think he's going to make us do something we hate simply because we hate it. That comes from this lie that God is just just wanting us to get it together, to be enough for him, to get ourselves cleaned up enough so that we can finally do this Christian thing right. That's not the God we serve. He's not up there screwing with you, having a great time on his joystick. He's not up there just saying, oh, if only they would just come on, be enough. You're not his toy. He's not playing with you. You're his child. 
And he cares so deeply for you that everything that he does is for your good. The story of Jesus walking on the water is in multiple gospels, but I think that Mark is my favorite rendition because of verse 52. So to remind you in verse 51, it says that he climbed back into the boat with them and the wind died down. And it says they, the disciples were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I remember the first time I read that passage and I was like, oh, I don't think I understand about the loaves. Like what, why, why is he bringing this up right now? That doesn't make any sense. What did the loaves have to do about this? And he's referring to Jesus's miracle to feed thousands of people when all he had was a few loaves and fish and he multiplied them to feed everyone. And something I love about this story is that it happens twice which just feels really, really relatable to me because of the number of times that God has brought me to, through something and I totally missed the point. So he's like, all right, let's just run it back, do it again. So it happens twice. He feeds, the, Jesus feeds thousands of people and then the disciples go through a storm and then a bunch of other stuff happens and then Jesus feeds thousands of people and then his disciples go through the storm. And something that I love about Jesus is that when we miss something, he is gracious enough to let us try again. You might wonder what the story of the storm has to do with feeding thousands of people, but I actually believe that the message in each story is the same, that Jesus is enough. That regardless of what your circumstances look like, like you can say, hey, Jesus, you know, we got thousands of people here. Great sermon, by the way, it was awesome, but you know, it's getting to be lunchtime. Maybe we should wrap it up, let him go home. And Jesus says, well, we'll just feed them. The disciples are like, Jesus, have you seen? We just got a couple pieces of bread, a couple pieces of fish. Like that's not enough. And Jesus says, yeah, it's not enough, but I am. Or you can look and say, we are in the middle of a storm. Like our boat could tip over and that could be it for us. Or even, whoa, there is someone walking on water and that is freaky. If that were to happen to us, we, yeah, we would totally be freaking out. That's not normal. But what our circumstances tell us is not the full story. Jesus says the full story is that he is enough. And I also love that it's not just that he's enough because it says in the story of the loaves and the fishes that there were 12 baskets left over after everyone had eaten their fill. Literally go around, be like, no, you want more? There's more. You want more? Nope, we're good. We're full. And there are 12 baskets left over. We don't just serve a God that gives us just enough. We serve a God of overabundance. We serve a God that gives us more than we need, more than we could even use. In Matthew's version of these stories, he says that the disciples' response at the end of the first storm was to say, who is this man who can calm the water? But that their, their response after the second storm was to worship and say, truly, you are the son of God. Our response to the storm matters because at the heart of every storm, Jesus is asking us the same two questions. 
Number one, who do you say that I am? And number two, do you trust that I'm enough? The answers to these questions are the bedrock of our entire faith and they are entirely based on our view of God. Do we see God as angry or disappointed or distant? Or do we see God as a loving father who is working and orchestrating everything for your good? Our view of God has to be able to stretch big enough to hold our pain. If it can't hold our pain, our view is not big enough. The storm exposes everything in us that does not trust God. The point of the storm is to produce something in us that would not be produced on calm waters. And what it produces, hopefully, is trust. Once our lack of trust is exposed, we are given an opportunity to surrender. And maybe here's something that the disciples missed out on. You don't have to wait until the storm is over to worship him. Every single one of us is either about to go to a storm, we're leaving a storm, we're smack dab in the middle of one. If you're in the middle of a storm, you can ask God, what lie are you exposing in me? What area of trust that I don't have are you exposing? And what is the truth? If you're not in a storm, now is a great time to get your survival gear up. Because if you learn the truth now, you will have it ready when you need it. We can never really be ready for a storm, but we can have a faith that is strong when the storm comes. Last year, I watched a friend of mine go through a hard season in her life. Every single day, I watched her endure unspeakable pain. And I have never seen someone cling to Jesus like she did in the middle of her storm. She was real and raw and honest about her pain and how much it sucked and how much she didn't want it. But she gripped onto her savior knowing that he was the only thing that was gonna be her anchor, the only thing that was gonna bring her through it. That kind of faith can't be summoned out of nowhere. That's a kind of faith that was already strong when the storm came. I've seen incredible things happen in her family because of her obedience and her trust in God. When we build our faith in everyday life with him, we can enter any hardship with confidence and then God does something really cool where he can use our faith in the middle of our pain to inspire others to trust him. I remember any time I went through a storm after I watched my friend last year, she was this inspiration of light to me. And I thought, okay, 
she could hold on through that. I can hold on through this. And that's so beautiful. Jesus didn't waver in the storm because he knew the truth of who he was. And we can be just as confident in our storm when we are confident in the one who is leading us through it. I'm not trying to belittle anyone's pain in this room today. I really hope you don't hear that. Honestly, one of my biggest worries and prayers today was, Lord, just please don't let this sermon be glib. (laughs) Because I don't want people walking away saying, yeah, okay, that's all great, but you don't know what I'm going through. And I want you to hear Paul's heart in his prayer. Because he prayed three times for the Lord to take it. He said, Lord, please take this pain. Lord, please take this pain. Lord, please take this pain. But our prayer can't stop there. It has to continue with, but even if you don't, don't let me miss what you are trying to do in me and in the world in the midst of it. Don't let me be so focused on how bad it hurts that I miss that you can use the things that hurt the most to bring about your sovereign plans to fruition. Because God can use our darkest nights to glimpse hope and truth to the world around us. And I can promise you this, whatever the storm is, it won't last forever. I've been through my share of storms where I believed I would not make it out. I have walked through decades of depression. I have been in pain so deep that I almost took my own life over it. And what I thought was the end was actually just the beginning. And how God brought me through unthinkable darkness. It was able to build my faith toward the belief that if God can bring me through that, he can bring me through whatever else is coming my way. And I can trust that whatever else is coming my way will not be purposeless, but that he will work everything for my good and for his glory. We did uh, give you the opportunity to ask questions. I don't know if we have any. Um, If anyone has a question they wanna raise their hand, please be nice. We're gonna go into a time of communion like we do every week. And I just wanna echo what Pastor Matt tells us, which is don't rush through this time because the most important thing that you can do today is not to listen to me speak. It's not to connect with friends out in the lobby. It's not even to serve today. The most important thing that you can do today is spend time with Jesus. So this is a time that we set aside for you to connect with him, to be with him, to be in his presence, 
to remember what he has done and the hope that you now have as a result of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for everyone in this room today. God, I don't know the storms that they're walking through, but you do. And I thank you that whatever it is that they're walking through, you will not let it be purposeless. That you have a plan for them and that that plan is working for their good. God, I thank you that you are a loving father, that you're so much more than we could ever need. You are the solution to every problem. You are the point and the purpose of every story. And God, I just pray as you're drawing us to you, as you're drawing us to wholeness, we won't miss it. We won't be so caught up in our pain that we miss that the point of it all is that we're working toward you and toward your kingdom, which was coming. God, we thank you that you are good, that you are holy, that you are wise. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.